We're um, going to read Mark 9, 30 through 41, and that is in the Pew Bible on page 714. So I'll give you time to turn. <laughs> so they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, where he was in the house. He asked them, What are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among men. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before I begin, I need to do something. Uh, Madeline, could you come up here for a minute? Could you come up here with me? When we were up in the... You look beautiful, by the way. When we were up in the baptistry and you were over there and I was still over on that side, I saw you look in the water and all of a sudden your eyes got real big. What did you see in there? Do you remember what you saw in the water? What was it? Was it a bug? It was a bug. <laughs> And, I mean, they got, got real big and started following it around. Fortunately, the current came over toward me, and I was able to fish it out, wasn't I? Now, I thought I heard when you all first got here for the baptism, now, your favorite color is pink, right? And you saw pink flowers over here. It seems like that was almost done for you as well as in memory of somebody, which I thought was cool. But you also saw on the way, is it true she saw a ladybug and was excited about that? I want to show you, Madeline, I hope this doesn't scare you. Do you see who was in the baptistry with us? A ladybug. It wasn't until after I got out I realized that, uh, that it was a ladybug, and I heard that you love ladybugs and that you saw some on the way. And I like to think this is the one that, that heard about your baptism and saw you and said, wait, wait for me, and then came along. Her, her name is Madeline. She's a girl. Don't ask me how I know that. But anyway, I just wanted to show you that because I thought it was so neat that you love pink and that you love ladybugs, and there was a ladybug in there that was able to watch. And this is your namesake, who has now been rescued from the treacherous baptistry. And I now need a responsible deacon uh, who could uh, set Madeline free. Set her. Uh, let's see. Stacy, you haven't been ordained yet, but you're also a physician, so come on up. I just wanted to show you, so congratulations on that. Thank you. You can go back and have a seat. I just had to share that. I thought that was the neatest thing. Set her free. 
your conscience is really pricked like, what do I do with this, you know, now, because there was real meaning to it. So I wanted to make sure the other Madeline was treated, treated right. So that was just so cool. Never had that happen. All right. Uh, Brian? Do you have something against ladybugs? or what? Oh, an usher. That's, that's, that's appropriate. Okay, usher, usher Madeline out. She, she's good. She's in good shape. Uh, is Brian still in here? Ethan, he gave me the C-plus in the first service, gave you an A-plus, so I just want to let you know. I heard that. I'm always listening up there. All right. We are in the second of a four-part series based on our 2014 theme, Follow Our First Love. Last week, we talk, we're really unpacking all four of those words of our main slogan, which is follow our first love. That's our goal for this year. But you also see surrounding it the word self-feeding disciples. You've already heard those words shared this morning. The means by which we follow our first love, who is Jesus Christ, is that each and every day our goal for this year is to take more time to have personal, intimate time with God. And so last week, we talked about follow. And again, we're following Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10 It's a very poignant time where Jesus has turned his face toward Jerusalem, as it says, and he realizes the suffering and death that is soon to come. But he is walking along that long journey from the northern part of Caesarea Philippi down to Israel. In fact, go ahead, Will, and put the uh, map up there. And you'll see, and I know you can't see the words, but you've got Caesarea Philippi up here. That's where it took place last week with Mark chapter 8. The first time Jesus, after Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus starts to talk about his imminent suffering and death and resurrection. And Peter takes him aside and does what with him? Do you remember the word? Rebukes him. And Jesus rebukes him back. Because again, Peter still has that in mind that Jesus is going to be this earthly, kingly Messiah instead of the heavenly, suffering Messiah whom God called him to be. And so he teaches them about what? Do you remember taking up your cross and following, uh, which we sang earlier? That's what he talked about in that passage in Mark chapter 9 last week. Well... That was up at Caesarea Philippi. Now, they're coming down toward Capernaum right here. And and you can tell as as you journey into Mark chapter 9 that Jesus is talking to them, probably teaching them in Socratic fashion. He's ahead of them as the rabbi. They are walking behind him. And he's trying to talk about his imminent suffering and death. And he gets even a little bit more graphic this time, saying, this is what is going to happen to me. And what's interesting... (laughs) What were the folks arguing about back there? Again, were they even listening to Jesus? Because they get to Capernaum and he asks them, while I was trying to teach you, what were you all arguing about back there? And they were arguing about, fill in the blank, who was the, what? Greatest. Are they even listening to him? Are they even concerned about what he is talking about? Do they even hear him when he says, I am soon to suffer and die and then I will rise? They don't even get it. Who is the greatest? And what does Jesus say? If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. And then what does he do? He takes an object lesson, or you could say, I guess, a subject lesson or a person lesson, because what does he do? He goes to the edge of the crowd and brings a child in the midst of everyone, which itself was a break from social mores. We'll get to that. He brings the child into the middle of the group, and then he embraces the child, picks him up, and he says what? Whoever welcomes this child welcomes me. Whoever welcomes one of these little children welcomes me. Now why? Because I think sometimes we misunderstand this. Follow me here. Why does Jesus use a child as an object lesson about putting others first? 
Why does Jesus use a child as an object lesson about servanthood? Is it because of how sweet and innocent they are? Because kids are perfect? Can I just, are, are kids sweet and innocent 100% of the time? Can I get a, no, okay, very good. I just want to make sure we are on the same page now. I can think of a few times where I have laughed just, just doubled over in this room during a service of worship. One was just a few weeks ago when the young man in this service requested that we sing Jingle Bells amidst my sermon. Do you remember that? It was great. I, was, it, it, I just lost it. number of years ago, I think it was in the mid-90s, where Deanna and I had, had not been members here very long, there was a children's minister named Billy Ruth Rasco. Does anybody remember Billy Ruth? Okay. Sweet, sweet person. She was asked by Pastor Paul Bazin at the time to deliver a children's sermon, and I believe his sermon was on forgiveness, so that was the subject matter she needed to do. Now, Billy Ruth was wonderful. Uh, she always got nervous, and I just know this because she told me. She always got nervous with children's sermons. It was probably not her strongest suit, but she did a good job and always got better, but she was always pretty nervous with it. And she thought, well, how do I talk about forgiveness? And I'll never forget this. Is Mary Estes in here? Is Mary here? Mary this is one of my fondest memories of being in this room during a service. She decided, I'm going to get Mary Estes to come up here with her grandkids. So the Glenn Estes Jr. kids and the Martin kids and the Wilson kids. And, and I'm going to bring them up here and Mary will come up here and all the rest of the children will join them as well. And what she planned to do was to ask Mary these leading questions toward what the point that she was wanting to make about people needing forgiveness. Okay, This is, this is a dear grandmother. Keep that in mind. So Mary comes up and she says, Now, Miss Zestus, you love your grandkids, don't you? Oh, yes. It just, she is just class and elegance personified. So, oh, oh yes. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes... They, they can be bad, right? And she just, in the most classy way, said, no. <laughs> now, Billy Ruth was like, okay, we got to get there somehow. So, well, let me, it was like, let me rephrase that. Oh, well, Miss Estes, I know you love your kids. Oh, yes. But, but they're bad sometimes, right? No. <laughs> Don't they ever need forgiveness? No. <laughs> Miss Estes, aren't they... I'll never forget this. She said, aren't they ever bad? She said, no, they're perfect. <laughs> and Billy Ruth is just sweating up there. I just loved it because Billy, really, you know, what do I do here? But she was doing her job as a grandmother, correct? Can I get a witness on that? Okay, she's being an unconditional grandmother. Yes, applause all the way around for her. Okay, she was staying true to her role as a loving grandmother. And, and the truth is, though, now if we're honest, kids can be cute and sweet and innocent and fun, but they can also be conniving and brutal and pouty and backstabbing just like the rest of us yes we can talk about the innocence of childhood but they have mixed motives quite frequently like you and i do so why does jesus use a child as an object lesson i think sometimes people think it's because of their innocence no that's not why he does this you got to understand the context of the day why does he use a child to talk about putting others first being a servant to all people let me say two things. First of all, the Aramaic word for child is, was, was the same word for servant. And Aramaic is what Jesus spoke while he was on earth. So again, th there's a close connection with children, servanthood, okay? But that leads us to something more important that some people don't realize. And, and, and like servants who were even lower, you've got to understand that children were at the very bottom of the social heap back then. They were the lowest in status. 
The distinguishing characteristic, the distinguishing mark of a child in ancient Mediterranean world was not their innocence, but their lack of rights, their lack of status. That really is what they were known for. Therefore, they were the most marginalized people there were, the most overlooked, the most disenfranchised, which is why it was a radical act for Jesus, literally, I'm sure he did, to, to walk outside of the fold of people who were in the inner circle there, the disciples and others, and bring the child into the middle and present the child, and then pick up the child. It's not what was normally done. That went against the social norms of the day. They were the most overlooked. They were also, and I should say this, if you really study Mark especially closely, the Gospel of Mark, they were also the most vulnerable in society. Study through Mark's Gospel, and and most often children are either sick or disabled. Uh, Jairus' daughter is near death. And goes and falls at Jesus' feet for Jesus to heal the child as Jesus does. The Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit. And just before the reading from today, Jesus heals a young man who from childhood had a problem with convulsions. Children in Mark, if you study it, they're not, they're not symbols of, of holiness or innocence. They're really symbols of, of, of poverty and disability, victims, disease. So Jesus brings those who are on the farthest outcast point into the middle of the fold. That's why he brings a child in. Most overlooked, most neglected, most disenfranchised. That's why he does it. So what's he saying to the disciples? If you're going to follow your first love who is me, what? You've got to put others first. Even what you consider the least in society, you've got to welcome them, serve them, care for them. You do that... And then you're welcoming and caring for me. Now, what does this have to do specifically with our theme for this year? Really, unless our goal is to put others first, and we really fulfill that goal of putting others first, can we honestly say that we're following our first love? I would say absolutely not. Now, how do we do that? How do we assure that we're going to do a better job this year of reaching out, moving beyond the me and my to the our, to the our and us? reaching out to others. How are we going to do that? You know how to do that? By feeding yourself spiritually every day. Taking even a little more time to have personal, intimate time with the living Christ. Whether it be through the prayer, whether it be through Bible study, whether it be through the discipline of fasting or praying or meditation. And we can review some of those as we've done so before with Richard Foster's wonderful book. But taking time out to do that, and how does that work? Well, when you become more intimate personally, With the living God, you're becoming more intimate personally with who? The one who loves all of us most fully, who cares for all most fully, cares most deeply about people, really became the least himself. Least himself on the cross on behalf of you and me. Spend more time with him, get to know him more, you wind up emulating him more, and you do reach out for even the least of these, the most on the outskirts of society. But you've got to cultivate that relationship. And I think it's the least you can do, is it not, for the one who stepped out of eternity and lowered himself to our place, living in our sin-sick world, entering our sin-sick lives and making us whole? I think it's the least that you and I can do. Now, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. Now and in the life to come, There's only one relationship that that is there at this moment for both, both in this life and the one that awaits. Now, what am I saying? Let me break that down a little further. The hour of follow our first love is that 
you and I will celebrate community together even after we die in eternity, the, the greatest of grace gifts. Death, death is not per, permanent or, or, or the end here. It's not final at all. It goes way beyond, and we will celebrate and worship together, glorifying God forever. And not just that, even now in this life, as you and I are going through times of suffering, just as Brian talked about with that difficult journey that he and his family had recently, there were brothers in Christ here at this church who were there to help usher him through that difficult valley. So that's great. We've got friends here, community here, who can help us through the suffering. We've got friends with whom we will glorify God for eternity. But remember this, there is one who is there for us at all times, who's there in a way for us that no one else can ever be. And I was reminded about that in a powerful way just the other day. I read one of those Caring Bridge reports that was written by our own Ann Watson about her nephew, uh, Gregory Morris. Many of you know the situation. Gregory is 11 years old. In 2012, he was diagnosed with anaplastic T-cell lymphoma. And it's been a tough battle. In fact, we, we need to pray for him even today. Just pray for him silently and even as you listen to me because we got another update from Ann just this morning that he's in a lot of pain right now. And I don't have to go into detail, but he's just in a lot of pain. And there's some medication that he's taking uh, in order to, to help that pain subside. This is an 11-year-old kid, but everything I hear about him is that he's an incredible kid who loves Christ, who really wants Christ to be glorified through this illness that he is suffering through. Amazing kid. I was very moved, though, by what Anne, and Anne is an eloquent writer, if, if many of you know, and, and I was so moved by what she shared because it really spoke to exactly what I'm talking about, about there's just one whose relationship you have with that, that is really most important and is going to get you through no matter what. And, and better than my trying to retell it, I'm just going to read this Caring Bridge entry that Anne offered up. Anne was in the first service, so she and John were here. And I had asked if I could, if I could share this. And I'm just going to read it and, and open up your ears and hear this, because I think it's beautifully put, and it's a powerful word for you and me. She's, and, and by the way, her brother's name, Gregory's father's name, is Scott. Okay. With the news of Gregory's cancer recurrence, some friends have asked specifically how Scott and Nan are holding up, father and mother. Obviously, they are weary of dealing with multiple health issues, and the suffering that accompanies family health issues multiplies when those issues involve one's children. Scott discussed this suffering with the family over the holidays, and even though the discussion occurred before we knew about Gregory's recurrence, what he said gives insight into his heart and his faith. Scott acknowledged that his family had had an awful year, but when asked whether the year's events had shaken his faith, he said, absolutely not. He said that the best analogy that he could find to his own suffering predicament was this memory. Long ago, when Matt, another son, was a small child, he had done something wrong that required punishment. Scott had taken Matt to his room and spanked him. Because Matt was so small, he did not really understand why Scott was disciplining him, and the little boy became very angry, stomping around the room, yelling, screaming, flailing his arms. Eventually, having worn himself out, Matt started searching for someone to comfort him. And after looking around the room and finding no one else, he ran back to Scott, sobbing and hugging him. In the end, Matt turned to Scott, even though Scott was the source of his pain, because Scott trusted and loved him, and mostly because Scott was the only one in the room. 
In telling that story, Scott said he now understood how Matt felt that day. Scott has obviously endured great suffering and worse, has watched his children's suffering, which at times has been excruciating. During these illnesses, Scott and the Morris family have received so much love and support from countless sources. But in the end, Scott has found himself, like all our suffering souls, alone in the room, alone except for God. Scott has had a choice to turn toward God or turn away from him. Because of the perceived unfairness of his family's circumstances, Scott wanted to rail against God, to stomp around, get mad at God, not because God caused the suffering, but because, at the very least, omnipotent God had the power to take that suffering away, and he had not. How many of us have walked that road? Eventually, Scott said he had to stop and acknowledge that he was the little guy in the room, and God was God. Scott didn't understand why all this bad stuff was happening. But after years of a loving, faithful relationship with his father, God, here's what he did understand, that God loves him, that God also loves Gregory, that God is good and trustworthy, and that God sees the big picture, and he does not. And in the midst of his suffering, Scott necessarily found himself reaching out to God for his love and comfort, Because even though he may not understand God's ways, he does understand God's character and that God is his only hope. There is no one else in the room. Now think about that. There is no one else in the room. This from a father who is hating to see his son suffer. But he knows that his heavenly father with whom he has had this ongoing loving relationship is the only one in the room who really is his ultimate hope in the end really his only hope and in the long run the relationship that really matters with you is with that same God who is your ultimate hope so what's he saying to you self-feeding disciple every day if at all possible get away somewhere you need to get somewhere to yourself And spend some time alone with the living God, who is the only other one in the room with you. That's your challenge for today and for this year. And the more you feed on him, you will feed others, spiritually, physically, emotionally. So let's do that, fellow self-feeding disciples. We do that, and indeed we are following our first love. How can we begin to commit ourselves to that right away? Is there a way that you and I can do that symbolically and physically? Indeed. How can we self-feed on the living Christ even now? Here we are. And I hope and pray that as we come forward, we will realize what it means to be fed and feed upon the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that we can make that a commitment to continue to do so in the days to come. Let's have a word of prayer together. Thank you for this table, O God, where we come forward and receive the bread and the drink and return to where we sit and where we ponder prayerfully before we consume the bread and the drink. What it means to be your follower. What it means to follow you as our first love. We confess to you that like Scott, like Gregory, like 
the Morris clan, they are going through such suffering and difficulty, and yet they're keenly aware that ultimately you are the only one in the room with them, the one true source of comfort, of light, of hope, and yes, indeed, the life beyond. May we claim that reality in our own hearts as well, O oh God. Be with us as we come forward and receive the elements and go back and, and sit and, and help us to have at least a small prayerful moment before we, when we feel led, consume the bread and the drink and, and commit ourselves anew to you that you would indeed be our first love this day. May you be glorified in what we do. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we always do, we'll ask that uh, the folks in this section go out toward the wall and come and receive uh, the bread and the drink, and then go back to where you sit and take some time in prayer, first of all, and then when you feel led to receive the bread and the drink, you can do so. Folks here in the middle section can come down this way, go back to the pew, do the same thing. Spend some time in prayer before you partake. And then over here, you guys move towards the wall, come and then sit back down. Then we will move toward a time of song later on, but for now, you're invited to the table.
the rest of us, let's just bow our heads and have an engagement with the discipline of meditation. And uh, those of you who haven't partaken, that's fine. Spend some time in prayer. But let this be a moment of meditation for you in, in this sense. You don't have to be completely physically alone to have God be the only one in the room with you. So spend this time, in a sense, alone with Him as He is the only one in your room right now. And confess whatever it is you need to confess or pray whatever it is you need to pray. If you want to pray for Gregory or someone else who you know is suffering and going through a difficult time, take just a moment and, and let you and God, who's the only one in the room right now, in the room of your heart, just take a moment and spend some time in meditation with Him. Teach us to be your servants, moving beyond the me and the my to us and our. Deliver us from ourselves that we might serve others more fully. And yet help us to realize how pivotal, how crucial it is that we spend time like this with you. For in doing so, we get to know the one who emptied of himself, indeed, yea, even on the cross and to death and beyond, that we might have newness of life. Help us to be all the more, O oh God, the disciples you've called us to be for this year, that we might truly follow you, our first love. We pray these things in your name. Amen.